Too dangerous to enter into the cauldron of the city itself, Bakhmut is burning. A line of tower blocks pretty much... In April, Finbar Kafriki from Akal Island was one of thousands to die while defending the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine against a bloody Russian onslaught. Now, two Irish Times reporters, Conor Gallagher and Dan McLaughlin, have found out more about how and why Finbar Kafriki ended up fighting and dying in Bakhmut. A very, very good guy to know. Stubborn, but also really fair. There was a, a, a mortar lander to the right of them, to the left of them, and then one hit them directly on their position. To follow Finbar's footsteps, Connor and Dan talked to those who went to war with him and to those who knew him best, including his brother, Colm. And I suppose he had spent so much time reading about injustice that when it was happening right there and he felt he could do something, uh, he felt compelled to do so. We were kind of in awe. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, how an idealistic Irishman became a casualty of war in Ukraine. Connor, we're going to talk about Finbar Kafriki. He's from Akal Island. He went to Ukraine to fight in the war and he was killed in Bakhmut. His family are now awaiting the return of his body. But before we do, we've heard a lot, especially at the beginning of the war, about humanitarian aid from Ireland going to Ukraine, but less about Irish men. And I think it is all men going to fight. Um, Could you tell me a bit about them? Yeah, well... We unfortunately have no uh, clear figures for how many Irish people uh, uh, have gone over to fight in Ukraine, and partly because it's not something the state agencies keep track of. For example, the guards or or, or Department of Foreign Affairs don't seem to have a database of people who've gone over to fight, Um, partly because most people go over and not not tell the, the authorities. But... Based on reports um, that, that we've been able to piece together, we think it's probably in the dozens, maybe as much as 50. Um, and, you know, we, some of these people have appeared in the news and given interviews. Uh, m- most recently, uh, a gentleman called Rhys Byrne, uh, he's 28-year-old from Dublin, and he has been fighting in Ukraine for 17 months right on the front line uh, with the 59th Brigade of the Ukrainian Territorial Army. Uh, he was a heavy machine gunner and he popped up actually on Sky News um, a few days ago where they interviewed him um, and he was actually leaving um, uh, to, to presumably return home to Ireland but you know he described hellish scenes on the front line and scenes of just uh, carnage and death everywhere. It's horror. There is just, it's, it's a genocide. It's slaughter. There is just people dead everywhere. Like Russians dead, Ukrainian people dead, Ukrainian soldiers dead, just left there. Just left there. And I don't know why. Another gentleman called Ivan Farina, uh, 51, so on the older side of things. He's a father of two from Selbridge. And he joined one of Ukraine's foreign legion uh, units uh, right at the start of the invasion. Um, he previously fought against the Croatian army in, in, in Bosnia in the 90s. Um, and he was actually attacked, uh, su- survived a rocket attack by uh, Russian forces while in Ukraine uh, when they targeted a base he was staying at during the the, uh, the the early weeks uh, people might remember he's, he's, he stands out he's got a black eye patch um, another gentleman uh, Dayton Brennan now he's not a, a fighter he's a, a combat medic and he was a combat combat medic with the defence forces for, for many years and he went over in um, 
last year where he was delivering first aid um, and, and trying to save lives and overseeing medical training for Ukrainian soldiers and how to provide medical care to injured troops. Um, and he recently, well, March 23, he returned after months on the front line in Ukraine. Um, in terms of deaths, um, of course, uh, Finn Barkafriki, who was killed um um, most recently, uh, also um, Rory Mason, a young man, 23 years old from Mead. He was killed early in October 2022 um, while fighting with the International Legion in the Kharkiv region. On the non-military side, of course, uh, Pierre Zakharuski, Fox News cameraman from South Dublin, who was killed in a, a Russian artillery strike. And I suppose we can understand maybe why a medic would go over, why a reporter would have to go over. But do we have any understanding why these men go over to fight? From my reporting on it, I get the sense that there are several categories of people to go over who go over and fight. There are people who are Irish citizens or born in Ireland or moved to Ireland from a very young age uh, from Ukrainian backgrounds and feel a sense of duty to go home and, and defend uh, th- their, their home country. There are people who do it for a sense of adventure um, and, you know, they see a war going on, they see it as maybe the defining thing in their generation. They maybe are a bit bored in Ireland or, 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 or a bit of a, at a loss. They may or may not have some military background. They often have zero military background. Um, and they will go over and, and some of them will, 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 will fight for a long time and, and be very effective and others will realise exactly how terrible war is and, and maybe give up quite quickly. There's other people who, uh, and I put uh, Finbar Kafriki into it, who are driven by ideology. Um, and Finbar's ideology would have been um, kind of coming from, very much from the left of things um, and driven by a sense of social justice. Um, and not gung-ho, a, a group of people who would maybe have had previous experience fighting in like in Kafriki's case, uh, Syria, fighting against ISIS. Um, they might also have military experience. And, and these are the people who are probably most valuable to Ukrainian forces over there. Connor, uh, Finbar Kafriki was 45 when he died some months ago in Bakhmut. His family have now got confirmation that his remains have finally been recovered. Um, when will they be brought back to Ireland? The unfortunate fact is we don't know. Um, Sources uh, from the Ukrainian side have told me that the situation there is is such that there's hundreds if not thousands of remains they have to process, including remains of foreign fighters. Finbar's remains are being kept in a refrigerated unit at a Ukrainian army army base alongside many, many others. They all, so they've, they've recovered the remains from the the spot where he was killed alongside two other foreign fighters, one from uh, America and one from Russia, strangely enough, and they were all fighting for the Ukrainian side. They were killed in a mortar uh, strike. They also have to go through DNA and possibly blood testing to actually get that confirmation and to, you know, it could be three months. It could even be longer than three months. A lot of it depends on how the war is going, I imagine, as well. I mean, 42 people were killed in, in the same action uh, at that day that, that in, in which Finbar was killed. So it gives you an idea of just the, the bloodiness of the conflict there. The city of Bakhmut has since been entirely taken by the Russians, although the Ukrainians are, are, are in the process of kind of surrounding it. So it's still a, very, uh, a lot of violence in that area. Now, Ackle Island is, of course, a, a small place. It's a very tight community. 
What has been the reaction there to Finbar's death? I was up there um, last week, actually, and the reaction, a lot of people didn't, would know the Caffrickies, very well-respected, very well-liked family. A lot of people didn't know Finbar uh, was over there, um, but it didn't surprise them either because he had that reputation as kind of a very active person who, who, who puts his money where his mouth is. He gets involved, you know, he doesn't sit on the sidelines. Um, and so there was a lot of shock, an awful lot of sadness, a huge amount of sympathy for the family. And a degree of pride though as well, I think that he was, uh, that he was fighting for a cause he believed in. There was a memorial service um, uh, on the island uh, led by his father, Tom, and there was hundreds of people there. There was a, a, quite a moving a section where um, Ukrainian refugees who, who have been are being accommodated in the area paid tribute to him and held up a flag thanking him for it, for, for his sacrifice. So I, I would say there's a lot of pride and obviously a lot of sorrow there in Akko. So you sat down with Colm Kafferke, that's Finbar's younger brother, to try, I suppose, to get to know Finbar, to understand what might have prompted him to go and fight in the war. Colm told you about the young Finbar. What did he say? Finbar was the big brother uh, to Colm and, uh, you know, a typical big brother. He was right about everything, uh, stubborn, you know, but also he, he described him as, as really fair. And, and talking to Colm, you know, he, he talks with great admiration uh, uh, for his brother. Being four years younger, you were kind of in awe of him because he'd be, he'd be just powering through these books, like, you know, and, uh, even from seven or eight years old, like, yeah, and things like, he was never sort of, and this is something that, that carried on that, that I've just sort of reflected on since he was never really bound by the social expectations, if you know what I mean, you know, real quiet fella until he got him started and then, you know, he'd, he'd have a right chat with you, like. Once you actually cracked the shell, he was a very, very good guy to know. And what did you do after school? Um, he, uh, he he gave college a go. Uh, he spent a short time in the uh, Reserve Defence Forces. He seemed to m- move around a lot. He was maybe looking for a purpose. And he was drifting a bit. But then Shell to Sea happened. And these are the, 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 the huge organic community protests against the construction by, by Shell of the infrastructure off the, the, the coast, which was going to have massive ecological impact on the That's area. That's 20 years ago. Yes, mm. that's right, yeah. And Finbar inserted himself right at the front of that, the front line, so to speak, you know. Would have spent a few nights in a cell over classes with police and that sort of thing. Once he got in there, it was like there was no, he couldn't step away uh, once the reality of it. And I suppose he had spent so much time reading about certain things and sort of being annoyed by injustice that when it was happening right there and he felt he could do something, uh, he felt compelled to do so, I think. Now, you have called in your, in your reporting on Finbar Kafferke, you have called him a veteran activist. Um, he, you say he was involved in Shell to Sea. Um, like a lot of local people down in Mayo, it was, it was massive protests at the time. But then he went to fight in Syria. Now, that seems like a massive, massive leap. What, what did Colm say about that? So when he went over, his family assumed he was kind of in that neck of the, the woods, um, helping refugees fleeing the, the, the violence in Syria. Um, it was only when they saw a, a video uh, through the media of him um, using his kind of uh, nom, nom de guerre, his, uh, which was 
which was Chia, which means mountain, um, that they knew he was actually uh, very much in the thick of it. And he was fighting with the YPG, which is the Kurdish uh, uh, movement. And, you know, they're, they're, they have a very, very uh, defined political ideology. Um, you know, they would be, obviously, from a, a Muslim area, but they'd be very progressive in some ways in terms of women's rights. Um, they have a very much a left-wing outlook um, and, uh, you know, fighting for a Kurdish state. Um, so they were fighting uh, the Islamic State directly and, and uh, Finbar was on the front lines there uh, with that. Like really taken aback, but also really proud of him as well. Like it was a really, uh, as my own personal thing, I know you're probably like, Geez, it's such a big, st- it's so out of the ordinary as a step for someone to take. You're like, wow, he really did put his money where his mouth is. Like, yeah, I just remember being really, really proud of it. And then once you got talking to him, you're like, okay, he's, he's you know, he's thought long and hard about this. So what was Finbar doing when the war in Ukraine started? Uh, I think he was at uh, a little bit of a loose end, as in he wasn't doing uh, too much. And when the war started, yeah, as in the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine in February 2022, Colum, uh, having seen him go to uh, Syria, thought Finbar's probably want to go want to go over to Ukraine. And of course, Finbar did, but they talked about us. Finbar wanted to go over there, but like he didn't conform to a simplistic view. He, he read about it. He was knowledgeable about the origins of the conflict, you know, the history of it. You know, it wasn't like he was... Russia bad, the West good. He would have been very anti-imperialist, anti uh, from a Republican point of view, anti-NATO certainly. According to Colm, he, he, he'd have the same opinion of Russia as he would of NATO. But he also saw that Ukraine was a country being uh, invaded and atrocities happening and that sort of thing. So it was almost inevitable that, that he was going to go and enlist. So he did, but he didn't enlist in military uh, groups initially. So was it a case of arriving in Ukraine, receiving some training and onto the front lines? Not at all. Um, in fact, he only uh, signed up with a, with a combat unit shortly before his death. Initially, went, when he went over, he worked with an anarchist group, uh, which is based in Poland, called ACK Glacia. And their uh, job was ferrying uh, vehicles and aid uh, to Ukraine from Poland. Uh, you know, it was a, a non-military thing. Um, he also worked with a group called XVX Tacticade, which uh, refurbished off-road vehicles for use in the war and Operation Solidarity, which uh, also uh, distributed aid and another group called Help War Victims. So these would have been supporting the war effort in various ways, but he wasn't on the, the front line. Um, his brother told me that it was only maybe a, a week or two before his death that he actually travelled to the front line. Um, I asked him, you know, why did he why did he do it? And, uh, you know, Colm wasn't too sure. He thinks it was probably to help out friends of his who were there to make sure they were safe. Unfortunately, then, about a, a short time later, he, he was killed. Now, you know, presumably his family in Mayo, they were looking at the war in Ukraine like every night. That this war has been televised, and they must have been absolutely terrified. When did they get confirmation that he had died? It was, it was a messy business. Initially, he wasn't classified as killed. He was classified as MIA, missing in action. And Colm was getting a bag of chips in Ackle when he got a phone call uh, off uh, another person who told him um, and, and said Finbar's missing in action. So they obviously had a good bit of hope there. Missing in action means 
you know, maybe he's gone off somewhere, he's joined another unit, maybe he's on the way back to Ireland, who knows. Uh, but the way they used missing in action was in a in a, a quite a pessimistic context, as in, you know, we're pretty sure he's dead, we just don't have a body. But nevertheless, the family still held out some hope, but uh, it was a, probably a week later that they uh, actually got confirmation that, no, listen, Finbar is not coming home. We haven't recovered his remains yet, but he, he, he is dead. That's when they're kind of, it really hit them. But unfortunately, still, they're, they're still waiting on that final closure because they still don't have the remains. Well, now, shortly after they heard about his death, um, Colm, his brother, his younger brother, tweeted that he didn't want any side claim Finbar as a martyr. Why did he do that? So after the death became uh, public, the Tonista paid tribute to, to, to Finbar in the doll after the, the his death became public, said he was a man of clear principle and noted his work helping refugees um, um, landing in diggings in southern Europe. Um, and this drew uh, an angry and somewhat bizarre response from uh, a Russian ambassador in Ireland, Yuri Filatov, who's become known as quite outspoken about Ireland's support for Ukraine uh, in the war. And uh, Filatov said that... Um, Ireland, the Irish government and the media must bear responsibility for the death of, of Finbar Caffergy. And then an awful lot of people were sort of, the sort of pro-NATO crew were seizing on this as a expel that yeah, thing, yeah, let's, yeah. let's NATO up here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was like, right, I think it'd be, it would be unfair to Finbar not to clarify this. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it's important. Wouldn't have been any more in favour of NATO than he would have of the, the Russian yeah, army. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. He was someone who, you know, had major problems with NATO and, uh, you know, what he would have probably called Western imperialism, who also saw the the, the suffering Russia was inflicting on, on Ukraine in, in, a, in an illegal war. Um, so he didn't want them to become a martyr for either side or a kind of a political stick for one side to beat the other with. Conor Gallagher, thanks very much. Coming up we get an insight into Finbar's time fighting in Ukraine. I spoke to people in Poland and Ukraine about Finbar Kafaki. Reporter Dan McLaughlin has traced Finbar Kafaki's movements in the years leading up to his death, and he's found out more about how the young man met his fate in Ukraine. He'd arrived in Poland shortly after the start of Russia's full invasion, back in February 22. And at that point, he was looking for a way to to fight, to join up with a volunteer unit, of which many were being formed in Ukraine at the time. It was difficult in general for a lot of people to, to find a way to fight with a unit, and it seemed that Kafaki didn't manage to find what he wanted at that time. So he came back to eastern Poland and started working as a volunteer working with um, an anarchist collective. And people there said they just loved him. They said he was, he was warm, honest, hardworking, funny, um, quiet, but also um, very, very kind. Um, people who were there all the time said they loved having him around. People who visited, volunteers were coming in and out from other parts of Europe, um, 
Germany particularly has a big anarchist community. They were coming in and staying in a safe house that this anarchist uh, network has in, in eastern Poland. And they, they just said that they loved having Finbar around as a person and also as a, as a colleague working in the warehouse. Very hardworking, very committed, very genuine. And then at some point he went back to Ukraine? It seems that an opportunity came up to, to join a leftist fighting unit uh, led by a guy called Dmitry Petrov, who is a well-known Russian anarchist who who was coming under increasing pressure in Russia in 2018, and he left and moved to Ukraine. In 2022, he joined up immediately and fought for Ukraine. And he also had wanted to create his own, as they call it, an anti-authoritarian battalion, which would fight against the Russian invasion. He it seems that Petrov, who's used many pseudonyms, one of which was Leshy, that's how most people in the anarchist community in Ukraine know him. It seems he saw an opportunity to do this in, in around March 2023. Three other anarchists signed up. Finbar, and there was an American, a former Marine, and a Ukrainian woman who goes by the, the, the nickname Yenot. I don't know her real name. She didn't want to give it to me. But she's a, an environmental activist based in Lviv. And they were all part of this, this, this big anarchist community. But, you know, training opportunities are limited. Um, places where you can go and get proper military training, uh, units that have uh, a training area where you can go and, and, and practice simply and prepare for battle are limited in Ukraine. And a strange thing was that it seems that the only, the quickest opportunity for training that was available to them was to train with a group called Bratstvo, which means brotherhood in Ukrainian, which is ideologically, diametrically opposed to everything that they believed in. Bratstvo is a, a far-right, ultra-Christian organization. Even though it was a difficult decision for them and a strange thing to have to do, uh, going against their political convictions, they decided to do this training with Bratstvo. And they said uh, amongst themselves, um, I was told by, by Yenot, who was actually there during the training, and also people who Finbar spoke to about the experience of training. They said, yeah, it was very strange. They didn't like a lot of the things they saw at the Bratzford training camp, the, the right-wing symbols and songs that they used, for example. Sometimes they laugh from this, but in general, they decide, okay, let's pass through it and then we'll have our unit without all this religious bullshit. So they went through the training. They, they came away from it feeling good and well prepared. Uh, I spoke to a guy who goes by the, the, the nom de guerre Madge. He's a Bratstvo fighter and he told me that Finbar had absolutely no problems with the training. Um, they trained with Kalashnikov rifles. He seemed to be, to, to, to be able to use one and didn't have any problems with that. They have their portraits in somewhere in Bratstvo headquarter. The Bratstvo really, now they really think that now it's our heroes. Yes. Now we're mm, marchers. How did Finbar and his three comrades then go from training to actually fighting? From the training at the Bratstvo training ground, they went to, they, they took an overnight journey. They, they got in, in cars and drove east to a place close to Bakhmut. Now, Bakhmut at the time, you know, it was an, there was an enormous battle taking place in Bakhmut. It went on for months and months. The Russian artillery almost annihilated the, 
the town itself. A scene of utter devastation. Not a building left here in the city that hasn't been either destroyed or damaged. But at the time when Finbar and um, his three comrades turned up there, April the 18th they arrived, uh, the battle was still taking place. There were still Ukrainian troops inside Bakhmut, and there was only one road to the west out of Bakhmut by which Ukraine could, ma could continue to supply those Ukrainian troops that were still in the city. This became known as the Road of Life. And they were given the task, the three of them, the three men, along with Bratsville fighters, of either clearing or clearing Russians from a trench or, or taking Russian positions close to this, this road of so-called road of life, so that Ukraine could keep supplying the Ukrainian troops inside Bakhmut. Now, on the night before the operation, um, late on April 18th, Yenot was told that she wouldn't be going on the operation. She could go to a medical unit and she could work with the medical unit and, and treat the wounded if they were wounded when, when the battle was taking place. She accepted that. She went to the medical unit. And on the morning of April 19th, the three men and the Bratstvo uh, fighters went into battle. And, you know, it, the, the, the fighting around Bakhmut and close to the road of life was just nightmarish at this time. As Madge, the, the Bratsford fighter, said, absolutely everything you can imagine was being fired in this area at the time. Tank fire, artillery, aerial bombs. You know, Madge said that a Kalashnikov automatic rifle is just like a child's toy there because the, the level of destruction and the, 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 the armory being used there is just uh, immense. Yenot tried to follow what was going on from her medical point from the radio chatter. And she thought, from what she could understand from the radio chatter, that they'd nearly accomplished their task, whatever that was exactly, either to take a trench or get Russians out of a position. But then, as it turned out, there was mortar fire on the position that Kafaki, Leshi and Harris were in, and they were killed by this mortar fire. The way that Yenot describes it was that there was a, a, a mortar lander to the right of them, to the left of them, and then one hit them directly on their position. A commander who, I think a commander who came back from, from the battlefield actually, said to Yenot that he had seen the bodies of Harris and Finbar. The same thing could have happened to anyone who was involved in that mission. They were just in a, in a horrific situation, just as anyone who was fighting in, in Bakhmut at that time was in the same horrible position. I mean, we still don't know the casualty figures, but we know that they are, they were, they are huge. Thousands of people were killed and injured in, in the fighting around Bakhmut at that time. Speaking to Madge about the chances of getting the bodies off the battlefield, he said at that time it was just impossible. The firing was just too intense. And it would have just been essentially a suicide mission to go in and try to retrieve bodies. They, you know, it was, it was all that soldiers going in there could do to survive themselves. Never mind going out into the field to try and retrieve bodies, which is a hard, difficult, slow process. Um, so at that time, it was impossible to do it immediately after, the, um, immediately after the battle and for several weeks following that. The impact that this has had on people who knew Finbar from his uh, volunteering days in Poland and in Ukraine is, is really heavy. I mean, they all told me that they were, they were really devastated by this news, the volunteers who had worked with him and people who'd come to visit, as I said, people who'd met him, 
coming through Poland, coming through Ukraine, they were just, you know, appalled to hear this news, what had happened uh, to him. These three men who were killed, including Finbar, are still um, remembered and honoured and deeply missed by the people they knew in, in the anarchist community, not just in Ukraine and Poland, but across Europe. Dan, thanks for talking to us again. That's it for today. For more reports and analysis from Conor Gallagher and Dan McLaughlin, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and John Casey. In the news, we'll be back soon. Music